1: I am Katie Rich, and I'm here today for our interview episode with Rebecca Ford. Hi, Katie. Uh, Rebecca, we're both here to have interviews that we did to talk about because we're getting into the heat of Emmy season and there are lots of people to talk about. So we have two interviews on this week's episode, which is very exciting. Um, And the first one we'll hear is you talking to Elle Fanning, who is the lead of two big shows um, and is pretty great in both of them, I hear. She is great in both The Great (laughs) and The Girl from Plainville. I mean, it's interesting
3: because Elle hadn't led a television show until she started The Great. And now she has two this season with season two of The Great and The Girl from Plainville. And I feel like she's just really shining on television in these lead roles. So, uh, yeah, it was definitely great to hear about the experiences. And she shot them two weeks apart. So she only had two weeks to transition from Catherine the Great to uh, Michelle Carter.
1: Yeah, I have not caught up with The Girl from Plainville yet, but it is part of um, what we've discussed as kind of a big true crime murder, I guess not quite murder in this situation, um, part of this big boom we're having now. But it sounds like she may be what makes that show really stand out from the pack.
3: Yeah, I mean, for those who don't know, it's a true story about a woman, who, a young woman who basically encourages her boyfriend to commit suicide, which he does, and then she ends up... Um, Going to trial for for sort of orchestrating this through text messages. So it was a really fascinating case when it came out. But they really are able to sort of dig into why she may have done this um, and sort of this reality she lived in. You know, she really um, romanticized shows like Glee and the movie The Fault in Our Stars and sort of these like dramatic tragedies and so that kind of helps explain it but it it really is Elle's performance that is really stunning because she has to it's a very demanding role in a, and she really pulls it off and she really transforms she looks a lot like Michelle Carter you kind of forget it's Elle Fanning
1: uh, yeah. And I should recommend to anyone who's interested in the Glee aspect of it that our, our colleague Savannah Walsh wrote a piece a few weeks ago about Michelle Carter's obsession with Glee and kind of had that show's strange legacy, um, which is not what I expected to be part of the story. So that's worth reading as well. Um, but for now, let's listen to your conversation with Alfanning. Fanning. So I'm so excited to welcome
3: Elle Fanning to the podcast today. She's the star of both The Great, which just aired its season two, and The Girl from Plainville, which has just wrapped up its finale on Hulu. I would love to start with what this was like filming these two things, how much time you had between the two of them and sort of how you pull off that kind of transition.
0: Yes. Well, I only had um, two weeks in between (laughs) in true, you know, my fashion. I'm always hopping from one thing to the next uh, very quickly. Um, And I'd really been living, you know, in that in Catherine's world for so long. So it was um, a real shock to the system. I would say I was a little bit nervous myself. I'm like, am I going to be able to do this? But I actually think it turned out to be a good thing. Cause going if it, if I went to like another comedy, I would just be trying to recreate, you know, some of the spark that we had from the great. So going to something really different and something I hadn't done in a long time, cause I hadn't really done a true kind of intense drama in a while. So yeah, only two weeks. <laughs> it's wild.
3: It's interesting because the great was basically the first show you really Signed on to uh, first television series, and and I'm curious now that it has become such a success, and it does take up a lot of your time. What has been the challenge of that? Are you? Or do you feel like you're able to still sign on to the films you want to do? Is it all just kind of a bigger balancing act for you now?
0: Yeah, I mean, obviously, with with shows, you do have to be, you know, you have to carve out. It's more of a commitment, so it's six months, basically, like minimum of a commitment. So you really have to love it to be able to want to sign on or, you know, potentially have to give up movies or other smaller things that literally like, you know, indies could take as like four weeks. So it's like, oh, you can do, fit so many little films in there. Um, But yeah, ultimately you just have to be okay with that decision. And so far I have been like, I feel like these shows have given me a challenge that no movies that I've come across lately have, have held, you know, I mean, these characters kind of couldn't be better in that sense, um, for challenging me. So gosh, I know, I mean the world, like it's also so odd now with films and TV and just like the blurred lines of that and how, a lot of movies, people are like, well, is it, is it on streaming? It's like, oh, it's not, oh, I'm not going to watch it. Like, this is crazy. Like just trying to navigate. I'm like, what is the next step? What is the right way to look at choosing a role now? You know, do you care about if people see it? Do you want to just challenge yourself for the part? Is it about the story? Like, I mean, it's always been a gut reaction for me. So I try to just go by that feeling of you don't want to give it up and you feel like you, you know, you want to work with that director want to work with those actors or that's kind of the same motto that I live by with how to choose stuff. But it's interesting. I mean, there's just so, I don't know, for me at least at this time, it was like the opportunities in the TV world were so perfect that I was, I was fine with the, with the long commitment.
3: (laughs) And obviously season two, This character Catherine is in a a very different place. She's taking power. She's pregnant. She's also mourning the loss of of a, a lover. And and I'm curious, was it more challenging to sort of get in this place rather than the narrative of the first season where she's like trying to come to power? I guess.
0: Yeah, I think the first season the arc was really like A to B and really fleshed out. And you could you know you could see okay, it's kind of naive young girls thrown into a crazy situation, and she has to figure out a plan of, you know, how to get out of that. And so the, the growth of her character in the first season was something that I was familiar with, was something that I could really wrap my head around. And then, you know, after finishing the first season, I'm like, what is Tony going to come up with? You know, it's, I don't think it can be, it can't be again, her just getting, you know, becoming a woman and being strong. Like, okay, what is he going to, what's he going to do now? And knowing, obviously, I knew in the first season, but that Catherine would be pregnant. was like, hmm, that's something I can really latch on to. Also in the comedy sense of playing with the physicality of the pregnancy and the growing bump. And I also became, I think, well, through both of these parts, but especially with Catherine, I can feel like I felt like my acting muscle, wherever that is or whatever that is or how stupid it sounds, but like it really grew and became less embarrassed. Like I really have become a little bit more uninhibited. I'm a very uninhibited person, but you know, you can't, you're, when you're on camera, you're like, you're conscious. I mean, you're, you have to not be. And I think with Catherine it's helped me to become so unconscious of what's going on and, and just going for the bizarre choice or really going for the harder choice i think that Catherine's such a juxtaposition of her her emotions are so wildly different at so many times and she has this insane ego that like she's really kind of you know she really thinks highly of herself especially in the second season and that was interesting to play with of someone who's so hungry for the power but then, when they get the power, are they really going to be able to succeed? Are you know? I think I wanted the audience to even question if Catherine was the right you know person for the job, and that's something that she's grappling with herself and trying to become a mother to the country and being a mother herself. Um, and I didn't you know the whole pregnancy thing, and I, I felt like Catherine isn't a very maternal person, so I was very aware of not like touching my bump too much because I also feel like when people. I don't know, when I've seen, you know, films and sometimes people touch the bump a lot, I'm like, oh, it looks fake. So I was (laughs) trying to, like, not be aware of it until the scene called for me to, like, acknowledge. But I I wouldn't, like, rest my hands there too often. Um, I was kind of, I was definitely aware of that. But gosh, yeah, that added a whole other dimension of, um, which was fun to play with. Because I think that's what our show does so well. It's like, we always cut, I mean, our, the high stakes and the drama are very real. Like we have to live in the truth of the emotion. And when things are hurtful or, you know, dangerous, they truly are dangerous in our show. And we all believe that. But then sometimes those intense moments are cut with a real comic beat or something, you know, and, and it's just like, it sums it up like having like a you know, political conversation while I'm like, eating dirt and sucking on nails and like you know it's kind of you have to just wrap your head around that and be able to do both and believe both fully for the show to work Um, and I think we really found our stride in the second season everyone really came to play like even more like knowing the first season's tone and being comfortable with that, we were all just ready to, to go at it. And we'd been in quarantine. So we were like, let's party. Like we can only party with each other. So <laughs> let's let's do this. <laughs>
3: So I do want to shift to Girl from Plainville. You know, we're talking after the finale has aired, um, but I want to kind of go back and for those who haven't seen it, the Hulu series is about Michelle Carter, who was convicted of involuntary manslaughter for basically encouraging her boyfriend to commit suicide. It's a true story. And Elle plays Michelle. And, and I'm curious for you, I think with a story like this, everyone wants to know just what was going on inside her head. And you sort of have the responsibility of, of figuring that out. So how did you approach that?
0: Yeah, that's, um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's kind of, I guess, the, the question of the hour with, um, you know, there's so many shows like this as like lately that we, we've seen. And it's so, I think, so telling of our fascination with these stories and, I think our fascination with seeing the behind the scenes, you know, when we, you know, these, these news stories that are so well known to, you know, we see them on the news or flashed across, you know, the headlines. And that was same with me. I mean, I think I was 18, 19 when the trial was happening. So I was probably, you know, I'm not, I wasn't following every detail of this but I definitely remember seeing those paparazzi photos of her and you know just being aware of the case and also being aware of how modern this case was because it has to it could only have happened kind of in this generation with the how we so rely on our phones and technology and that connection of false intimacy that we're all still trying to Navigate. So I was aware of that. Obviously, they were around my same age. So you're aware of that. But just how kind of one-dimensional the media paints these stories. And I think on both sides, it's like Michelle was very much the Black Widow and manipulator. And I don't have to agree with the things she did. But you also have to, in order to play a character, you have to understand how she got there. You know, how did she... How was she able to say the things she did, and the process of that? Um, and then on the other side, you know, Conrad, he was very one-dimensional as well. He was kind of this victim. We didn't learn about his backstory or who he was as a as a young man. And when they came to me with this story or wanting to, you know, possibly turn into a show, I was like apprehensive. Like I was like, I don't know if I should do this. I, do we? Does anyone need this retold? Just because, you know, every, these families are still alive. a Life was lost. It could really be the really bad version of this could really be awful. And since, you know, romant, trying to romanticize this or sensationalizing it and just I definitely wasn't interested in, in that. Um, and I think, you know, they, I got to be a producer on that and being able to actually, even though, you know, there's a greater responsibility when you are both in it and a producer, but I think having, being more involved and having more of a say gave me a little bit more comfort to know that it would be in the hands of people that I trust and and friends of mine. And we were kind of all doing this and share the same hope for the show. And that it's just this, it's very, I think it's a very unbiased telling. We're not trying to rewrite what happened. I mean, she was convicted and that, that is the truth of that. But at the same time, really bringing awareness to what young people are going through today. And with Michelle, at some point you have to separate yourself from the real person. You know, there, of course, there's the physicality and, you know, you want to try to look as accurately like the person on the outside. And people are very much aware of what she, you know, especially in the courtroom looked like. And, I, I watched a lot of the courtroom and things like that but at a certain point I separated myself from kind of who she was because honestly I didn't talk to her I don't know who she exactly is you know I've there's not a lot of footage of her and so as an actor you kind of have to create your own trajectory or you're not going to be able to tell the story so in my viewpoint I what really got me in there was her obsession with Glee and the Fault in Our Stars and kind of that YA world and living in fantasy and like the the blurred lines that we all kind of have with between like fantasy and reality. Cause I live in fantasy land, like I'm an actor, so I'm very much aware of that that feeling sometimes you can get caught up in stories and make-believe. And um to me that was when I kind of saw an understanding and if someone, these two people who were very, you know, they were very lonely and, and reaching out to one another. I mean, we had access to a lot of things, to all the texts, which we read and very, um, very intense to read, but also filled with teenage silliness and a full relationship, but they only met a handful of times. So it was so intriguing. I mean, I think the balance of, calculating her at each moment was something I'd never, you have a responsibility because these people are alive, but then also just as from a character perspective of the the high drama that she has a lot of the time was something that I was very aware of and, and wanted to show, but then was also slightly worried that people would think, but L, the actor was like being overly dramatic or hysteric. And I'm like, oh, are they going to, are they going to get that? Is this going to come across or is it just going to look like really bad acting? <laughs> Which, you know, I don't know how to describe, but it was towing that line every day of how far to push it and how far to, to not.
3: It totally makes sense. And, and I think it works really well in the show. And, and one of the things I thought was really smart was how, when the pair are texting, The show made it so it looks like two characters are talking to each other because no one wants to just like read text on a screen in a television show. But I'm curious for you as an actor, was that ever difficult to do because you're reading text sort of to each other, but acting opposite each other at the same time?
0: Well, I thought the same thing even when, you know, when this show was presented, I hadn't really read the scripts yet. I'm like, but how is this going to be cinematic? Like texting is so boring. Like if I have to watch another show with people texting or the bubbles popping up, like, I'm like, I can't do that. I don't, I I don't, that's not filmmaking to me. (laughs) It's just not, you know, something we live every day. I think a lot of the time when it's something we experience every day, we don't want to watch it. You know, I don't want to watch people in masks or like a pandemic show, that's for sure. <laughs> Not, you know, the new thing. So I um I was I was pleasantly surprised when they had kind of come up with this device of having us both in the rooms and together and and the text messages were all, you know, really lifted from their real messages. So knowing that also helps you to know, well, this is this is based in fact because it's really their conversations they had. But we had guidelines, like we had rules in those scenes where we weren't allowed to touch each other. And a lot of the time, Colton and I, he's just so good. Colton's fantastic and um, so happy that he we got to have him. Um, but he, both of us were kind of calculating this thing because He'd be playing one emotion. I'd be playing another or interpreting his words in a different way. And we would really like experiment with, with that in those scenes, because like text, you know, a lot of the time, something you're trying to say, someone's, you know, interpreting it differently. And so we would play with that when we were, um, we even played with possibly like not looking at each other, but I think we ended up, that was a little step too far. We were we did look at each other's eyes. but I think we, we would te- we would test out different things. What would work best?
3: It definitely captures how many miscommunications there are over text. <laughs> like it's just so relatable <laughs> because it happens to everyone. And I want to talk a little bit about the finale without super spoiling anything. Although I think most people know how her story sort of ends. But there's a really interesting sort of fantasy element to the way it ends, and sort of wondering what her life could have been like if things had gone differently. And, and I'm curious how that choice came about and, and why you feel like that really worked to, to end the show.
0: We talked a lot about what episode eight was going to be because it's just how do you end this story? You don't want to tie a ribbon around it and and kind of neatly package it away because there's that's not what happened. But then also you have to kind of put an end to it somehow. And I think because our show played with these fantasy moments, we kind of sprinkled it throughout with the, you know, the, the Glee musical and we have the teenage dirtbag and seven at the end. And it just seemed fitting. There was kind of no other way to get inside of Michelle's head. I think that's what we tried to do is that she's kind of stuck in this world that she can't get out of until she kind of faces what she did and what she's done and kind of face the guilt that she's been carrying with her. And, you know, cause also we didn't want to, there would have been another way of trying to show the phone call or show what happened that night. And that just did not feel, that didn't feel right because no one was there. We don't know. I, you know, we weren't interested in trying to imagine that because, you know, we don't have records of, of, of what that was. So I think kind of going inside of, you know, she lives in such a fantasy world so much at the time. And so to be able to kind of take a step back and do that. And, and, you know, in the pub bar that like where we meet, there was a lot, all these Easter eggs kind of throughout of that the set designer had put in of, it kind of felt very like Michelle Gondry, like in a way, you know, Colton um, and I, we would, we were kind of, we felt like we were in like, I don't know, eternal sunshine or something like, you know, and, um, you know, kind of committing to that, but also, yeah, just kind of taking a step back and kind of seeing what, what is in there for, for a moment and, and seeing her possibly, you know, regret the decision that she, that she made, um, and, and lives with till this day. You know, I also think I, I love the shot of like both of them. I mean, it's very on the nose, but I think it sums it up of like both the phones going in and they're the weapons in our show. You know, we mm-hmm. don't have a weapon, but the phones really are. So um, in this case, so I also really like that shot, but there was really no other way. I think we, we had to tie, we had to kind of culminate it in this, in this fantasy because we didn't want to re, we didn't want to write, come up with something and, and make it, well, this is what happened, you know, cause that's also really dangerous to do yeah. because, you know, we didn't want to do that.
3: Yeah. And the interesting thing I noticed in this show when the verdict is read and then in The Great, it happens every once in a while, but especially when Catherine finds out about what Peter did to her mom, there's these close up shots on your face, which is like, they they work so well. But I can imagine as an actor, they're not the easiest thing to pull off because you have to show so much emotion. And, and I'm curious how you approach those moments because directors seem to love to do it to you so you must, you're you very
0: good at it that is so funny because I never thought about that but it is now I'm thinking I'm like cameras are always really really close to my face it's like you can't make any sudden movements you're like gonna hit um I know well Liz was calling because Liz directed that episode she was calling that like the silence of the lambs shot you know <laughs> like right up in there um I wonder why. I don't know. It's like these impactful moments. When Yeah, like you said, it's like the most emotional moments. So like, let's get up in there and see. So you're like, okay, pressure's on. Like, camera's right. I'm literally looking basically into the lens. Um, it's just like, you know, you and the camera. There are, I remember that day for Plainville, that was, it was, you kind of have to drown everything out when you're doing, I mean, in general, you do for for those those scenes. But when the camera's with you, it's like, there's no, like, there's just no one, there's nothing else around. And I really get into a zone. I remember, I think people like that day were like singing, like full on songs, like in the back. And like, Liz was like, what are they doing? Like people are like, she's like, this is crazy. But I I don't even remember that. Like, I just, you have to put such blinders on and you're just like, in this trance with the camera. So I quite, I kind of enjoy those, those moments. I'm like, all right, let's go. (laughs) (laughs) Let's do this. (laughs) And you sort of mentioned this when we started
3: talking, but I'm curious for you, how you sort of view these two roles. Do they have something in common for what they've allowed you to do as an actor? You're saying they sort of allowed you to stretch and, and be challenged, but in, you know, in 10 years, how do you think you'll look at these two roles?
0: I think that they mark a really special moment in my career or working. life. Like, I think they just do. I mean, it's it's really interesting, too, though, as, you know, people are seeing me more as like an adult, you know, adult actor or whatever, because um, I started working so young. But then I'm also like, well, in Plainville, I'm playing like a seventh, I'm playing like a high schooler. But still, there's something about it that it's not, they're not viewing me in the way of the the child. And I think, and I was thinking about this because I think when you're a child acting, like those roles are very like, they're kind of designed to be observant. And I, and I was very conscious of that when I was younger and I was kind of envious of the other actors that I would work with because their roles would be, you know, the parents or whoever it is, they're always the people doing the thing. They're doing something and they're getting to be wild and experiment. But then the child in the scene is kind of the one that's like weirdly like kind of knows better or like is the eyes through it. Like, and so you're kind of, which is a real, it's an exercise. Cause I'm like, wow, I've really learned to kind of capture that knowing, <laughs> you know, just like observing quality. But I'm like, When am I gonna be able to be the one being observed? I don't I'm like, I wanna be observed doing the crazy stuff. And I think these two roles have allowed me to kind of step out of being that observant and getting to take action in a real way and take action in my career and and just take hold of that. And and so yeah, they've marked, I mean, I think there might, I don't know, they're extremely special and like. Hope more things, hope everything feels like this, but I am aware that it's, it's a real unique feeling.
3: And so I know the show, The Great has been renewed. Are you already reading scripts or shooting or where are you in the, in the process for season Yes,
0: we start um, filming in May. So we're about to go, uh, go back to London and I've read one script, one, the first one, because he writes it as he goes on, but we also had like a pitch out meeting the other day and. He explains the whole season i'm like i can't believe i'm going to be jumping back into that playing you know i haven't played a character for so long i don't know I mean, i've never done i mean i guess with maleficent i came back to it years later but this is just really she's growing at the same rate i am Catherine. i'm like it's really it's a really cool experience
3: i was getting a little worried because i know the show is not based in fact but in history you know peter doesn't Last much longer in this story, but I can't imagine you not acting opposite Nicholas Holt. So, uh.
0: either I'm getting worried too. I was worried last year because Tony never really would say what was gonna happen. I mean, we knew that Nick was saved to the last episode, but still, it's like, what are you gonna do? Like, he can't die. I'm like, it's Nick. Like, what do you mean? Like, he's it's like you know my partner in crime on this show it's like he's makes this show he's so incredible so i don't know i don't know i mean now he plays pugachev right so there's that mm-hmm. but That's i don't you know tony he'll come up with something <laughs> <laughs> i know i'm worried <laughs>
1: Okay, so now for our second interview, uh, we're gonna hear me talking to Wumi Masaku, who is a real standout among many standouts on the new HBO series We Own This City, um, which is from David Simon, famously of The Wire and i started watching the show on your recommendation rebecca and you know you kind of agreed with me that she was a standout from it john Bernthal is kind of the big maybe like flashiest performance at the center of it as this cop who you kind of watch getting corrupted by the system of baltimore police but wumi masako who you um, might also know from lovecraft country and also from loki she's had a pretty incredible couple of years plays kind of more of the audience surrogate. She's this woman who's come from the Department of Justice. She's trying to investigate what's going on there and is going around kind of like a classic detective story, asking questions, trying to get to the bottom of something. And what really stood out for me, and I, um, you may have noticed this too, Rebecca, like she's got this warmth to her. Even when she's asking like really functional, exposition-heavy questions, you kind of feel the real person in there. And, and I was mm-hmm. so excited to talk to her in real life and, and witness some of that for myself. Is that something you've seen, you've noticed too, Rebecca?
3: Yeah, I think that role could have been really dry and sort of boring if mm-hmm. with the, in the hands of the wrong actress. So I'm really excited you get to talk to her because I, I feel like she brings so many layers to it that, you know, probably weren't on the page.
1: Yeah, and I felt that way, too, about her performance in Loki as Hunter B-15, you know, this kind of big, flashy sci-fi show and Tom Hiddleston doing his charismatic Loki thing in the middle of it, and she really brought a lot to that character, too. Um, So I was uh, really excited to talk to her. Let's hear my interview with Wumi Masaku. Okay, so I'm here with Wumi Masaku. It's uh, such a pleasure to have you here because I devoured the first three episodes of We Own This City In a way I didn't expect because it's heavy material and I think you watch it and you're like, am I ready for this? And then it sucks you in the way that so many David Simon shows have done before. Um, And your part in this show, uh, you know, we're only going to talk about the first three episodes, so I don't know where your character is headed. But it's this really complex show, and you, in some ways, are the audience surrogate. You're kind of the person who comes in and asks the questions and, like, tries to to set things straight. And that's a challenging role in a lot of ways. But the the challenge that I kind of want to know about first is just diving into something that's this complicated and this rich and and where you start from to play one piece of a show that's thorough.
2: The way I approached uh, Nicole, because she very much feels like the audience going through this story, finding out this story in real time. I felt like that when I was reading the script. Mm -hmm. I was reading it and thinking, what happened? When? Where? Who? Who were these people? And I would go back and forth between, like, you know, Wikipedia and Google and, you know, newspaper clippings and and a lot of the questions that I was asking myself, or, well, asking, (laughs) Nicole was asking, Mm -hmm. um... And a lot of the the things I was feeling about this whole, the whole system, Nicole was feeling. Mm-hmm. She felt to me like the audience in the piece. That's how I approached her and felt really natural and and, you know, really honest, normal questions someone might ask and think and feel when faced with this idea of like... Who holds power? What do they do with this power? Mm-hmm. Who's safe from these people with power? who's who's not safe? That's how I approached her. It felt yeah. very um she felt very honest. Her opinions, her feelings, her responses felt very honest and genuine.
1: I think in the first episode, it feels to me like something of a um, of a thesis for the character where uh, Nicole is greeting a new colleague and he's like, how does this not make you mad? And you say as Nicole, like, it does, but I try not to make that part of it. And I feel like what I'm watching after that is, you know, you're saying that she's very honest and, and says what she thinks, but she's also kind of dividing herself in some ways and trying not to let it pull her down. And is that a mm-hmm. tension that you keep in mind as you develop this character over the course of the show?
2: yeah I feel like that's a I feel like that's a really again genuine tension that I feel a lot of people walk around with on a day to day the kind of needing to get things done needing to live your life needing to feel joy and peace but also needing to to confront the things that are oppressive uh, confront oppression yeah. and uh, and violence and inequality and all the things that are oppressive I do feel like that is what we do yeah it's be, it's being a person not just doing this kind of job yeah yeah
1: I think a lot of actors take um, research for a character as kind of like um like a chance to go back to school like you get to dig into something and learn about something you didn't know about when, when you jump into something like that, is, is that how it felt to you was it kind of like going back to school to learn about police in Baltimore and what a consent decree is, which I didn't know and had to look up. Do you do you relish that level of research on this or anything else?
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, it just, you have to understand all the things that made the character who they are from the moment you meet them, right? So you kind of, you work backwards, you know, what does it take to become a, a lawyer in the civil rights division what is the civil rights division of the the um justice department yeah. um, what are these departments especially for someone like me who's coming from the uk it's like yeah. learning trying to understand the whole, how the whole system works but then at the same time you can get quite distracted by you know going mm. too far in because you can find out if she played a played the guitar <laughs> but also <laughs> You can you can work that you can make that up, but also for for someone like me who's really new to the whole country and how everything works, I had to keep it quite streamlined and like yes, figuring out what a consent decree is and seeing the final product and what it meant to for in in Baltimore, uh, learning about Baltimore as a city, learning about systemic inequalities and the systems that are in place.
1: I mean, you've worked with at least two veterans of The Wire that I can count with uh, Idris Elba and Luther and then on uh, the late Michael K. Williams on Lovecraft Country. Was, was The Wire or anything, any of this David Simon world, was that familiar to you? Did it loom large for you in any way before doing the show? I
2: hadn't watched The Wire. I had started it in 2009, mm. but... I didn't have like a TV where you can record things and rewind and I couldn't understand the accents and stuff. And oh, people watch it with know, subtitles. So many people do. Right. <laughs> so I didn't have any of that available to me. So I And I stopped watching in 2009 because I just couldn't. I don't think I got past episode one because I just didn't understand what was going on. Then I actually started watching it last year just because it's my husband's favorite show. Mm. Like he's watched it all the way through five times. And I don't think that fifth time will be his last time. (laughs) Um, And, you know, it's the greatest TV of all time, TV show of all time. Apparently, that's what people say. And so I had decided to start watching it. And then I got the audition. And then I was like, oh, I'm going to stop because I feel like I can get quite intimidated and Mm -hmm. feel inferior and have what was it called? Uh, imposter syndrome. Yeah. And so I wanted to meet David and George and Nina as equal as I felt like I could, like as in not, you know, idolizing them as gods, as mm-hmm. demigods, you know. And um, so I could meet them in that environment as honestly as I could as people. Yeah. And I'm glad I did because <laughs> I'm still what, I am I restarted it again, actually last week before last and it is amazing, and they are brilliant. And now I watch it with love
1: mm-hmm. for them
2: as people and the peop- and the creatives behind it as well, because a lot of the wire cast and crew were on the show, yeah, and this feeling of family and community and loving Baltimore as well, now I watch it with um a, a different like reverence, a more like a more connected reverence rather than, like, these, these, you know, these creative gods, (laughs) you know, (laughs) like... I feel like that's so much of the power of the show, too, is The Wire,
1: like, like We Own the City, is so complicated and has so much about systems uh, and, you know, the way that a society works. But the people, the characters, you just care about in such a deep way. And it feels like people, you know, I still think about Stringer Bell as a person 15 mm. years after watching the show. And I think that's the, the power of this kind of storytelling that you feel so yeah. connected to it. That's so fun yeah. that you get to connect to it as like a viewer having like lived it, sort of. <laughs> I don't know if it feels like that to you.
2: You know, I do, I, everyone said, people keep saying like, why a 2.0? And I'm like, the why a 2.0? I'm like, I don't feel like it's, I, I think even David might have said that too. Mm-hmm. I feel like because it's based on truth, it hits me completely differently because I didn't know what mm-hmm. had happened in 2017. I had no idea. And... The Wire is a drama, a, an amazing piece of fictional TV. And that kind of artistry is one thing. And then there's this. This is like real life with real consequences and real repercussions. And people are still dealing with the the fallout of even being in that city, whether or not they connected... Directly with these cops, the city of Baltimore is changed because of the level of corruption yeah. um, that was in the P- BPD. It's quite extraordinary to me just to see the scars and wounds on a city. And I don't want to, I don't want to triv- trivialize it or compare it to a drama because it's mm-hmm. because it, the, the wounds and the scars are real and aren't even Healed.
1: You had this really long career in Britain, you know, graduated from Rodden that did a lot of television there. And I but you married an American, and I wonder if this leap to America was partly part of your career. You know, you went up BAFTA and kind of get bigger opportunities, or was it did you move here for love? Did you move here for work? Was it a combination of the two? Did it feel like a, a
2: natural step forward for you? You know, it was really yeah, it's really interesting because yeah, I had just met my husband a few months before I won the BAFTA. I was in the States for a couple months for pilot season, like every other actor. Mm. And and then I was like, I, and then I won a BAFTA. Won a BAFTA. <laughs> and I was like, wow. But then I met this guy and I was like, <laughs> oh. So I moved to the States with a lot of trepidation about my career because here I am starting again. Mm-hmm when things have just started to feel like they were getting good in the UK. Mm-hmm. So it was definitely for love. Like, mm-hmm. I think if I was thinking logically, <laughs> have, or like about my career, I would have thought I would need to stay in the U- UK because this is, I'm something's happening right now. Yeah. And actually I moved here and then continued working in the UK. Yeah. For like a year. Like I was, I did... I moved here, and then I got Luther. Mm-hmm. Which so it was a horrible me. commute. <laughs> it was a terrible commute. <laughs> um, my husband um, got me that job. He, he was my reading partner on that scene, so we we say. <laughs> um, and then I came back when I finished Luther, and then I got another job in Wales. I got um, uh, through the gates, so I went back to for that. And then I came back, <laughs> and then I got... <laughs> his house back in England <laughs> and then I got Lovecraft Country yeah, and that's when I started to kind of work here but then I still had another job in the UK that I had to go back for and then Lovecraft went to series and yeah, it's it was, it was a long commute. <laughs> well, even with Loki, like you're
1: working with Tom Hiddleston, who you'd known since college. So it's like yeah. it's still all connected back to London. To the UK. So true. <laughs> I mean, obviously, when you move cities, you have to build, rebuild relationships and that's part of it. But does do the TV industries and the movie industries feel distinctly different in terms of what work you have to do or what you get to do or, or how you make your way through it?
2: Again, I feel really lucky because our director on Lovecraft episode one, who did the pilot, was Jan Demange, British. Mm. And then our director on Loki was British. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so I feel like they had seen my work. So mm-hmm. I felt like when I would come for pilot season, I absolutely felt like a newbie. No one knows any of my work. Nothing had ever really been out in the U- in the U.S. So I felt really new. And like, I was starting from scratch. However, I did have people who had seen my work, who would happen to be working in the in the states. So like Kate Heron and and Jan Jan Demange, they hap- they had seen some of my work. So I actually felt very very lucky that they were on those teams, and because they they could vouch, <laughs> they they had a little bit of trust. Yeah. in me, and I wasn't completely coming in without the 14 years prior. Yeah, yeah the you know? work that you had done translated over, which is yeah. important. Yeah, I did feel very lucky about that.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, you've, you've talked in other interviews about Lovecraft Country being a, a really transformative experience in a lot of ways with who you're working with and working for a Black director, and I wonder how the like that show ending was so sudden for so many of us because it had such a huge impact in its one season. And I, I wonder how you've, cope with that? And if it made you kind of think differently about investing in a TV show that can get canceled after a season or working in America, did it throw you off in any way And in moving forward in your career?
2: Not really. I think in the UK, hardly anything I've done has been like, uh, you know, season after season. True. Vera is the only thing I can think of. Luther, I came in for a season of Luther. But yeah, I'm I i I'm used to things not going again. <laughs> I'm used to it being like it and over. I'm actually not used to going back to something a year, two years later. Uh, but it doesn't, uh, you know, I'm very, I, th- I think I'm very like flexible. <laughs> I always think blessed are the flexible for they never lose their shape. That is something I try and hold on to and like, you know, something else will come something else will happen and and to appreciate it for what it was and and really not take it for granted when you're in it because you don't know if it's gonna be the end or if it's Mm -hmm. if it's a one season thing yeah I try and hold on to the idea that something something will come something will come and try and stay calm about it and not Mm -hmm. hold on too tight to an idea because then those expectations lead to disappointments. Yeah. So I do try and, like, <laughs> let it go.
1: <laughs> well, I think actors talk a lot about how, you know, there's only so much control you have over where the next job's going to come from and if it's going to be any good. And I, I would imagine at this point, you know, you're you're building off of these things. You know, Lovecraft can lead you to something bigger. Like, do you feel like you have more at least control over what you can choose and, and jumping on a ship that feels right uh, than maybe you did 10 years ago?
2: Definitely don't feel like I have more control. (laughs) I don't, I just don't. I don't know. I don't know if anyone feels like they have control. Yeah. Unless maybe they write and produce themselves and maybe you would feel like you would have a little bit of control there. But I, I don't feel like, I feel very lucky. I feel lucky that, you know, someone had written a part that played towards my strengths and I was cast in that. I feel like if someone didn't write that part or they wrote them differently, it would have been for someone else, you know? And so I I feel like I always just think of myself as like floating (laughs) in a very big lake. (laughs) And the deeper the water, as scary as it feels, actually the more likely you are to be you're gonna be held up by you know, with the deeper the water. And so sometimes you you want to fight and control. And actually, if you try and fight, <laughs> you'll just exhaust yourself. Uh huh. And so I try and just imagine myself. I really do think this a lot, like just me floating on a lake. Don't fight it because you'll just lose.
1: Well, you mentioned, you know, people who write and produce things themselves earlier. Like,
2: is that something that interests you or is it all acting for you? Oh, it does interest me. It scares me, though. Uh, It does scare me. I feel like, uh, I don't know, I feel like the ability to write different voices is amazing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's like, (laughs) to me, it's like playing the drums, like, you know, different limbs, different rhythms, different, you know, sounds. I'm like, oh, each character has a different voice and a different objective and and, and rhythm. So I, I really do admire it. I would love to.
1: When you were in acting school, was there like a, you know, I don't know how much anyone sets out a path for themselves, because like we're saying, as an actor, it can sometimes be out of your control. But did you have a sense of what you wanted or what you thought would happen? And has where your career has gone lined up with that?
2: Oh, no. My career <laughs> is nothing like I imagined it would be. I didn't grow up seeing a lot of people who looked like me, of my, even my African descent. I, you know, we had a couple of shows with, with a very, you know, Caribbean family, you know, families and dynamics, but nothing that, I, nothing I lived felt represented on screen. And then I guess I kind of fell into acting because my mom was busy and she put me in an acting class on a Saturday because it was the only time she puts all out of the house so she could <laughs> get the house cleaned and da 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 And so I really fell in love with it, but... I I and I guess my first love was really theatre, and when I found out about drama school, I didn't even know drama school existed until mm. it was time to go to university, and and I and I panicked and I was like, I don't want to do maths and economics, I don't want to do it. I want to. I think I want to act.
1: Yeah.
2: And so you know, my sister and I went through the whole cast of Annie, which is still my favorite film, and heard and heard about Rada because Albert Finney, Sir Albert Finney, went to Rada. Um, and then we were like, OK, so I'll apply for RADA, And I thankfully got in. And, and I really thought I would, I really went in thinking, OK, I want to be the most demanded Shakespearean actress of the stage one day. That was my hope and dream. And I also thought I would go to the Royal Academy of Music afterwards and do opera and um, and maybe be an opera singer. I mean, it was always stage. So this is this has been a really, you know, I, I don't, I, and I haven't felt prepared for any of this in one respect, because it wasn't part of my plan. But then, because of the nature of our job, and you know, you start off with one line here, two lines here, five lines here, mm-hmm. and then you get to. character number five and then your character number one and it's like (laughs) wow um there is a build up so that you do feel slightly prepared for for it in a way um especially when it comes when you when you start off slow you know and start Mm -hmm. off like for the marathon of it but yes it wasn't part of my plan to be on tv I just I didn't see it happening I I didn't feel like you know I felt like on everyone on TV looked like a certain way and it was commercial and this and that. And I felt like I wasn't. So, and in fact, I think I was told many a times I wasn't. And so this has been a really sweet surprise.
1: Do you get to feel the impact of, of what that representation means that now you are on TV for people who didn't think that someone who looked like them would be on TV? Do you, do you get that level of feedback from
2: viewers or anybody else? You do, actually. And sometimes you take, I take, I take it as like, oh, this is my job. And I take it for granted of what it means to someone else. And I feel that I feel the importance of it. And um, someone with my hair texture, with my skin tone, with the, you know, my West African, well, not even just West, My my African gap in my teeth and, you know, my full figure. I feel like it matters, but it also it doesn't just matter for those who want to be an actor. I remember a kid coming up to me after seeing a show and saying that they wanted to be a lawyer. After seeing Damolola, Our Loved Boy, they wanted to be a lawyer. I didn't play a lawyer, but that show mattered so much to them. And it was based in on on true on on um a true life story of a uh, a tragedy that happened in Peckham, um, London, and I played his mother, and that's the that's the role I I, I won the BAFTA for. Mm. And this young kid, just like I want to be a lawyer, I want to be a lawyer, and I'm like, wow, because of this TV show, like. So this, it, it just, it, I just think art opening people's eyes to cultures and and problems and issues and love and can inspire someone to do something else, think something else, feel something else. It doesn't even necessarily have to be in line with what I'm doing in it. Mm-hmm. Like I'm sure, I hope, but I'm sure We Own the City will inspire someone to join the conversation about what are the police here for, who are they here for, and what can we do to make sure that they're here for everyone? I'm sure that conversation will come up somewhere. And maybe that this, this will inspire someone to be a lawyer or I don't know, or politician, I don't know. But a representation of all things matter, of, of life matters, of the breadth and depth of humanity matters. And then you don't know what will come forth from that.
1: That does it for today's interview episode. We'll be back on Thursday with our usual roundtable conversation. Uh, in the meantime, you can find more on all of this spring's big TV shows at VF.com. Follow us on Twitter at LittleGoldMen. Or sign up to text with us at subtextjoinsubtext.com slash LittleGoldMen or text 718-550-2059. This week's episode, as always, was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs.